Morning, Bethel. We are uh, continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. So if you can take your Bibles and turn, if you don't have a, a Bible with you, you're welcome to follow along the Bible in the pew in front of you. If you're using that one, you'll find our text for this morning on page 1049. Um, and if you happen to not have a Bible, we'd love to give you one as a gift. Um, you can find one out at the uh, Welcome Center on the way out this morning. We would be more than happy to give you a copy. So, Luke chapter 20 this morning, verses 21 to 44. And again, it's on fa- found on page 1049 in the Pew Bible. So while you're turning there, um, to just think with me here about a few different things, authority, ownership, slavery, choice, um, concepts that are all kind of connected, interrelated. So this song that we just sang is very appropriate for our text this morning um, in Luke 20. It says that we should sing to the king, Jesus, who's coming to reign. So he's coming to rule over us. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Um, Glory to Jesus, the lamb that was slain, life and salvation, his empire. That's rule, reign. Do you think life, do you think freedom when you think of ruling and reigning and serving um, a king? So life and salvation, his empire shall bring joy. Do you associate joy with authority? and service, and rule. Um, Come, let us sing a song, a song declaring that we belong. Do you associate freedom and joy and all these good things to ownership, being owned by someone? He's all we need. Um, It's interesting. We live in a world where a couple things are going on, I think, usually at least in our Western culture. Um, One, we live in a world full of choices, okay, pretty overwhelming presence of choices. Um, There's so many options available to us. Sometimes people come from other countries, and they're just overwhelmed just to go to the grocery store. So is the presence of choice um, between this option, that option, and certainly between good and bad, is that actually the embodiment of freedom? Okay, we know that authority oftentimes has really negative connotations. Ownership oftentimes has negative connotations. Think ownership and slavery. We want to run as far away from that as possible. Certainly see abuses in our nation's history and throughout history. Coercion is ugly. So sometimes we think, we think that freedom is just to cast off all yokes and have this perfect ability to choose whichever path we want to go on. But that's not the only kind of choice there is. Have you, have you ever been really totally consumed by something or someone? Okay. If you need an example to come to mind to think about, maybe think of some, you know, madly in, in love young couple. They just are, are consumed and controlled by this other person, maybe especially as they're in the midst of the thrill of the chase, you know, 
It's just like everything. It dictates how I dress. It dictates how I smell. It dictates what I say. It dictates where I go. You know, like the guy that, you know, learns the girl's college schedule in order to make sure they have little, you know, accidental meetings, you know, here and there. It just kind of governs everything. Is that coercive and and oppressive to be controlled and just owned by someone like that? Is that slavery ugly or is that a happy slavery? Okay, so not all ownership, not all authority, not all um, slavery is bad. Some of it is really sweet. So the presence of choice between good and bad, you know, standing in this kind of sovereign place of being able to go this way or that way, that, that's maybe not necessarily the embodiment, the embodiment of the freedom of the will. Maybe it's, it's degeneration. Think about the garden, okay, before the fall. Um, that choice for the first time between good and evil is what ruined everything. To obey the will of God and the commands of God prior to the fall was the happy path, right? So maybe heaven is not just like, you know, endless Costco living or something like that. (laughs) You know, just choices everywhere. Maybe it means you are so owned and so... (sighs) happily the slave of God that you can't help but choose anything else. So, interesting, just thinking about the nature of our will. You know, Bob Dylan said it well. you got to serve somebody. <laughs> there actually isn't this place of, of kind of free, sovereign choice. I can just go. There. We're always going to be slaves of what we want. So, what really messes things up is when we want something other than what God wants. So as we head into our text this morning that has a lot of authority and some heaven and ownership in it, hopefully we see that the authority of Jesus and the ownership of of God and the heaven that he points to is actually the happiest slavery you could ever imagine. And it's, it's the very dividedness of our will and our minds in this life that makes us so miserable. And one day, all of that war and battle is going to be gone. And we're going to be happy slaves of the king forever. Okay? So let's read this text together, and then we'll pray and dive in. <clears throat> Luke 20. And we'll just catch verses 19 and 20 for the sake of context and... Um, Read through verse 44. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on Jesus that very hour, but they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so they could deliver him to to the rule and authority of the governor. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you're not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us? to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. 
He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a, having a wife and he's childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her, and in the same way all seven died, leaving no children. Finally the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he called the Lord, calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you've spoken well. For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Then he said to them, How is it that they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you that you have faithfully preserved this word for us. We thank you that you have accommodated yourself to us and made yourself known in your acts in history and through your prophets, through your scriptures preserved for us, through these gospel writers who recounted the life and teachings and works of our Lord Jesus, the ultimate revelation of your character, your self-revelation, the word became flesh. We thank you that we can know you because you have made yourself known And Lord, as we consider your character as revealed in this passage, we pray that we would see your rule as a wise and loving and benevolent rule. I pray that we would see also that we will serve someone. We will serve something. And I pray that we would be aware of the ways in which we oftentimes resist you and bow the knee to someone or something else that is not the king. And I pray that you would purify our hearts, that you would give us soft hearts, that we would see our obedience to you as happy service because you are such a good and wise and loving king. And you have our best interest in mind and you lay down your life for our good, for our eternal good. So give us ears to hear. Help us to listen and gladly submit to your authority and ownership over our lives in every nook and cranny. Show us where we're resisting, where we're holding out on you, where we want to be in charge, where we want to control 
our lives and show us that that's actually slavery. It's not freedom to withhold from you any aspect of our life. So give us grace, Lord. Teach us and shape us and show us your mind as we study your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so a little review here. I read verses 19 and 20, and authority is a big theme in this section here recently because Jesus has come into Jerusalem, and so the rulers, the kind of powers that be, especially the religious leaders, are confronting Jesus, and they're trying to catch him in his words because they want to arrest and destroy him. Okay, so he's already been, you know, they tried to catch him on the horns of a dilemma, this ruling body in the temple, the Sanhedrin. They tried to hang him on the horns of the dilemma, okay, asking him a question to set him up. They thought he could, they could set him up and, and have him be... Um, you know, guilty of blasphemy or, you know, inciting something against the state so they could arrest him and kill him. Instead, he answered in such a way that they're actually caught on the horns of their own dilemma. They were publicly shamed by their non-answer answer in the previous section. Okay, they couldn't answer him. Hey, I'll ask you a question. I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer my question. Was John the Baptist baptism from heaven or from men? And they wouldn't answer him. So he didn't answer them, and they were shamed, okay? So he turns it on them. So rather than risk further embarrassment, they decided to send some lackeys to do their dirty work, okay? Some spies. You see it there in verse 20? They watched him and sent spies. Because, see, if Jesus continued to nimbly escape their verbal traps, well, at least they won't firsthand kind of lose any more face in the process. Okay, so they send these spies. Look at verse 21. They, which is the spies now, verse 20, spies of verse 20, they question him saying, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you're not partial to any, but teach the way of God and truth. Okay, ironically, these guys are traitors, they're double agents, but they're speaking the truth here. This is true of Jesus. This is the way he speaks. But they say it in a duplicitous, flattering way. And yet they probably believe it to some degree. In this sense, they probably believe that because Jesus is one who doesn't mince words, that doesn't, you know, soft pedal things, they think that this trick question is going to work. When they ask, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not, they think they've got him because he doesn't, you know, kind of dance around the truth for self-preserving or diplomatic reasons. He speaks the truth straight up. So they think they've got him. Either way, he answers. Okay, the question itself was legitimate if it had been asked for legitimate reasons. Okay, this tax was a terrible reminder to the Jews. They hated it. Okay, they were under the thumb of Rome. They were subjected by Roman rule. So that tax, that poll tax with the little denarius, it was actually representative of that subjugation. It was a, a regular reminder of that subjugation. And it also represented the pagan, idolatrous cult that the Roman rule was built on. Okay, so the coin that, that paid this tax had an imprint on it. 
And it was a, an imprint, a picture of the emperor, the Caesar, with this superscription translated. Caesar or Emperor Tiberius, who was the emperor at the time, the Caesar at the time, son of the divine Augustus. So Tiberius is viewed in the Roman emperor cult to be the son of God. Son of a God, at least. On the other side of the coin, some of these coins had a female figure that represented Tiberius's mother, Livia. Okay? And it portrayed her as the priestess of Augustus. And it proclaimed the Pax Romana, that piece of Rome, you know, through which so many nations were put in subjection. So the question is, is Jesus going to endorse this emperor cult? And if he endorses, if he says, yes, it's lawful, then is he endorsing the national idolatry that this coin represents? I mean, you can imagine if you were a Jew at the time, having that very coin in your pocket would feel like you have a little idol in your pocket to a false god. And then you've got to pay this tax regularly. The tax burden was already heavy enough on the Jews. So many of them just basically eking out their existence. And so this heavy tax burden must have felt like they were back in Egypt under Pharaoh. And they were longing for deliverance and they wanted the Messiah to come and deliver them. And they believed Jesus was the Messiah, their deliverer. So if he says, yes, it's lawful, what are the, what's the crowd going to do? <laughs> They're going to leave. You mean you don't have no plans to break this yoke? We've been wasting our time. Who is this guy? And it's actually the popular support of the people that's proved to be the buffer between Jesus and the plots of the leaders. Okay, back at the end of, of chapter 19 of Luke, it says this. He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they couldn't find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on to every word that he said. So the very kind of popular support was protecting Jesus. That's why they had to, you know, end up getting Judas to betray him and do it in a private place so that there wouldn't be an uprising. So the plan in asking this question was either to distance the people from Jesus, discrediting him, or if he says, no, it's not lawful to pay the tax, then they had him. He would be arrested as a revolutionary. In fact, there actually were a couple of revolutions that took place after the time of Jesus, not long after the time of Jesus, and they were over the refusal to pay this poll tax. And there was a leader and some popular support, and it got crushed by the Romans. That's what they're hoping to do. So they think they have him. But verse 23, he detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. It's an amazing answer. We, we know it. We've heard it. You know, it's even known in kind of our popular culture. So the kind of, whoa, that was, I mean, if you were watching this movie for the first time, you'd be like, yeah, that was awesome. Okay, when this kind of thing happens in a movie, you, you thrill, but we just, we know it. This is, the question was pretty clever. It wasn't an easy one to dodge, and Jesus gives an amazing answer. Okay, so the Roman government, let's unpack it a little bit, that statement. The Roman government technically owned all their coinage. Okay, these coins belong to Caesar. But Jesus also here 
is in effect legitimizing a pagan state and saying that his disciples should honor and obey the governing authorities. It's pretty shocking. It's pretty shocking for Jews to think through that. Ancient Israel, that was a theocracy. Okay? They were ideally to be ruled by God, right? Through the king, in his place, in his land, under the word, under his word, you know, via the prophets and priests. And guess what? Almost every other nation did the same thing. They built up their politics on their gods, around their gods. So it was their gods which gave them their vision and their you know, politics was built around that worship of the God. Okay, Rome certainly had theirs, the emperor cult. Okay, but Jesus is not a theonomist here. Okay, he knows that his people will live in nations that are not governed by God, by divine law. His kingdom is not of this world. So he begins right here. This is amazingly helpful for us. He begins right here to establish the way for us, his disciples, to live under pagan states and to do so faithfully. Even if the tax is excessive, even if it's used poorly, if the government levies a tax, you must pay it. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Christians should be good citizens. Jesus' disciples in the in-between time of his first and second coming should be good citizens. We should pay our taxes. Okay, just as God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 29, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to these exiles who were out of the land in Babylon under an oppressive foreign rule, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, here's how you ought to conduct yourself. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its, in its welfare, you will have welfare. Well, we're basically in exile until Jesus comes back and takes us home. Makes all things new. This is the same way that we ought to live. This is the nutshell summary of our dual citizenship as Christians. We considered that for a whole message back before the election. If you're interested in this topic, I'd encourage you to look back and listen to that one. So we're citizens of the city of man, and we should be good ones at that. That is the vision of our relationship to the state under the rule of King Jesus. Okay, I I want us to... Go and read three key New Testament texts for application here. I'm just going to let the Bible itself apply what Jesus is saying here. One, so that you know what they are. And if you do know where they are and what they are and what they say, do we live self-consciously in obedience to these truths? Because sometimes when we don't like the government, especially when we have a government where we have representation and a voice and, you know, rights and all of that, sometimes we we can be very dishonoring in our attitude toward the government. Of course the government's imperfect and oftentimes corrupt and there's abuse and all kinds of things like this. It certainly was the case with Rome and Jesus said this. And it was the case when Paul was writing to Rome, when Peter was writing to his readers. Okay? So first, look at Romans 13, 1 to 7. We're just going to read this slowly and just listen to these words They are the application. Are we taking them seriously as citizens of the city of man? 
following Jesus. Romans 13, 1 to 7. If you're in Luke, flip over a few books to the right. Using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 1137. You're going to look at three texts. Key, these are the most, probably the key New Testament texts as far as the church and the state. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. He is sovereign over every nation and every ruler, whether it's a president or a king or a whatever you want to call your leader or leaders. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear or respect. Honor to whom honor. a sober word. What, what's your reaction? You immediately, whoa, 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 whoa. But what? Yeah, yeah, Paul knows. It's not like Rome was the perfection of, of you know, the ideal government. There was corruption. And sometimes people got, you know, what Jesus is not saying is that in this fallen world, all, everything that's lawful will be moral. And everything that's unlawful will be immoral. Sorry, we live in a fallen world. That's not the case. But in general, okay, when there is a school shooting, aren't you glad there are SWAT team people that can go in and that there's a judicial system to bring justice? Sometimes the way we drive, police lights don't comfort us. But you should be really grateful, despite the fact that there are crooked cops, that we have police do you know what it's like in some places where there's just like martial law? So this is generally true. Of course there are exceptions and nuances and whatnot, but you can't write this off because of some of those exceptions. And the language is careful enough. Every person is to be in subjection to. That actually leaves open the possibility of civil disobedience if the government seeks to force you to do something against the will of God. You can actually have a submissive spirit and disposition and disobey. So, 1 Peter 2, another, another text. Turn to 1 Peter 2, verses 12 to 17. If you were to ask Paul, if you were to ask Peter, I think they would say, this is unpacking the very things that Jesus is saying in Luke 20. Verse 
keep your behavior excellent. First Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, assuming that's going to happen, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And very soon that king, in Peter's context, is going to be lighting his garden with Christians dipped in pitch. This is not like a Pollyanna, are you kidding me? Rose-colored glasses, like you don't understand. Peter understands. He's been beaten already for preaching in the name of Jesus. He's already said we must obey God rather than man. And he said this. Do you see? Those aren't contradictory. This is the general disposition. And this ought to be our disposition. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. 1 Timothy 2 then finally, as application, praying for the sake of our leaders. First Timothy 2, 1 to 4. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, this is Christian citizenship. Christians should be good citizens. Now, Jesus could have just stopped after that first half. Render the Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But he goes on. If you want to talk about what we owe, then he can't stop there. Look back at verse 24. Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, render to God the things that are God's. You see that word likeness in verse 24? It's the same word that's used back in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We were made in the image, in the likeness of God. God made human beings, us human beings, male and female, in his image, in his likeness. The likeness of Caesar is stamped on that coin. He owns that coin. You owe it to him. Pay your taxes. But if we want to talk about ownership... And the appropriate response, the image of the one and only God, Caesar's not Lord, the image of the one and only God is stamped on your soul. Render to God the things that are God's. That's comprehensive. God owns us. He owns us by creation rights. He's the creator, we're the creature. We owe everything to him. We should give thanks. We should obey him. We should honor him. Caesar's authority is limited. God's authority and ownership is unlimited. So yes, pay your taxes. Give honor and respect where it's due. But give your life to God. 
every aspect, every nook and cranny, give it to God. Remember that parable of the vineyard earlier in the same chapter of chapter 20? There's this vineyard owner, owner who plants a vineyard. He lets it out to tenants, and then he sends messengers. And in the context, it means, you know, in the Old Testament, he sent prophets to give some of the fruit of the vineyard. Remember, they beat them up, sent them out. See, this is the character of this vineyard owner. He didn't say, give it all to me. I'm going to oppress you. Just some of the fruit. It's my vineyard. I didn't have to lend it out to you. I'm lending it out to you to provide for you. Yes, give me some of the fruit. Oh, no. We'll beat him up, send him away. When, when he sends the son, if we kill him, he's the heir. Maybe that old man's already died anyway. It'll be ours. Let's kill him. They wanted the vineyard for themselves. All the, the good gifts to use for themselves. This is all of us. This is Romans 125. We've all exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, the created things, rather than the creator who's blessed forever. That's all of us. By nature, we have taken all these good gifts. That's what we want. We worship and serve the gifts. And many of them, good but we say, um, give me some more of those gifts, but I really don't want anything to do with you. We use God to get what we really want. And he did send his son, and we did kill him. And he died not tragically, not as some overpowered victim, but he died willingly. He died so that we rebels who were made stamped in the image of God because he owned us and we said, no, I got to throw off this yoke. It's so oppressive. Oppressive? You got the whole garden. It's all yours. One restriction. The liar comes in and says, oh, magnify the restriction, minimize the freedom. Man, God's a killjoy. That's where the misery comes in. The real happiness is to see God in all of his goodness and glory and to be a happy slave and do whatever he wants because you know what? What he wants is always the best. So he sends his son so that we rebels who've used him, we've used him. It's like, oh, I heard this illustration this week. The Bible uses whoredom as an illustration for sin. Imagine a wife coming to a husband and saying, can I have $300? Sure, why? Well, the cost of prostitutes has gone up. You go, oh, that's us. That's what sin is like. That's what using God to get what we really want is like. And what does he do with us? Rather than damping us out, he sends his son to die so that we could become sons and daughters of the true emperor, the true owner of all things by his grace, through faith in him, turning from our idolatry. Oh, what a lie to exchange you for all of these things, worshiping and serving those things. Repent of that. Trust in Jesus. You're everything. So that we could become heirs of all things. If you are in Christ, you are doubly God's. You're God's by creation rights, and you're God's by redemption rights. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? And that's good news. 
For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, every nook and cranny of your life. So what aspect of your life are you holding out and holding away from the authority, ownership, kingship of Jesus? No, he's Lord. Render to God the things that are God's. Give every nook and cranny of your life over to the rule of the only God, the only Savior. He deserves it. And it's what's best for us. And to resist his rule is actually to resist his blessing and his protection and his help. Abraham Kuyper, maybe you've heard this quote before, famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. If you are not a Christian, you do belong to God, whether you like it or not. He made you. And if you resist him, resist him, resist him, one day he will call you to account. And you will be judged for rejecting his ownership. So even right now is mercy from him for you to give your life to its rightful owner. Owner by creation rights and owner by redemptive, gracious, loving, I'll die for you to make you mine rights. Just receive it. Your Lord, I'm not. I've been resisting you. I, I want to be God. I want to be in charge. And I've made a mess of things. So repent of your resistance to his wise and loving rule. Jesus came to die for your freedom, which is really happy slavery to the king. He came to die for our pride, our, our rebellious pursuit of autonomy as if it existed. So give your life to God, whether for the first time this morning or for the 500th time. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Verse 26, and they were unable to catch him, even though that was their intent back in verse 20. They were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. They wanted to do it in the presence of the people because they wanted to discredit him, right? They were unable to do it. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. So this group was silenced, but another group stands up, tries their hand. Look at verses 27 to 40. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection. Thank you, Luke, for that little editorial comment if we don't know who the Sadducees are. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a, having a wife and he's childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now, consider this situation, teacher. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her, and in the same way all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. So in the resurrection, you know, the one we don't believe in, Therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Can you hear them snickering as they say this? Can you see their wry smiles on their falsely dignified and serious faces? What in the world is this all about? Well, back in Deuteronomy 25, there is something called Leverite marriage, okay? In that day and time, <clears throat> basically there's this provision in fact, turn back to Deuteronomy 25. This would be 
brief. You should see it. Um, I'll read it here. Verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Okay, this is a little weird for us. But the point is, this is what's happening in Ruth. Okay, kinsman redeemer, next of kin, um, can take care of, of Ruth and Naomi. So the reasons for this, though, you can imagine, one, to perpetuate the name of the deceased brother, so his name isn't kind of wiped out. Two, protection of and provision for that widow. Okay, there wasn't the kind of structure, social structure, to take care of widows. And so oftentimes, if a woman was widowed, she was absolutely destitute, and she needed to be cared for. So this was a protection and provision for her, this thing called Leverite marriage. It also kept the man's possessions in his family, among his relatives, okay? We don't know a lot about these guys. The Sadducees, they apparently wielded some aristocratic influence in Jerusalem. They would have butted heads with the scribes and Pharisees over the resurrection and maybe some other things. But at least we know they didn't believe in the resurrection. Okay? And it's also stated oftentimes that they gave special credence to the, to the Pentateuch. It's debated a little bit. Um, but they certainly, you know, emphasize the first five books of the Old Testament. They don't believe in resurrection. They think this practice of Leverite marriage actually endorses their non-resurrection view. Okay, so if you believe that people just die in our worm food, then how do you perpetuate your name? Well, only through offspring. So this thing is really important. So they come up with this ridiculous scenario to make Jesus, who obviously believes in the resurrection, he even predicted his own resurrection already in Luke, to make him look ridiculous, to discredit him before the people. So Jesus responds and says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they're like angels in that they can't die anymore and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. This last little section, Jesus is kind of playing on their own turf. He could have proved it from other places in the Old Testament, but he goes to the Pentateuch in order to kind of play on their own turf. Is God only the God of past beings that are now non-existent? Those who do not exist have no God. So for God to be their God, they must still be alive. Some of the scribes pitch in, and even though they don't know what else to say, they don't have any more, you know, zingers to try to catch Jesus, they're actually kind of, they're going, hey, good one, because they believe in the resurrection. Teacher, you've spoken well, but they didn't have courage to question him about anything else. So what do we make of this teaching? I'm just going to make one simple point. There are plenty of engaged or newly married couples or people that want to get married or whatever who can be really bummed out by these verses. <laughs> they want their love to last forever, okay? And this seems like a letdown. Don't ever buy that lie. There's this wonderful quote by C.S. Lewis that I read a long time ago and it has come up over and over again. It's so wise. It's from the book Miracles. Listen to this. 
Because this applies for more than just the engaged or the newly married. This applies for all of us as we consider what is to come. The letter and spirit of Scripture and of all Christianity forbid us to suppose that life in the new creation will be a sexual life. And this reduces our imagination to the withering alternative either of bodies which are hardly recognizable as human bodies at all or else of a perpetual fast. As regards the fast, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure, should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. On receiving the answer no, he might regard absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. (laughs) He does not know the positive thing which excludes it. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. Hence, where fullness awaits us, we anticipate fasting. Or, in the words of 1 Corinthians 2.9, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So, Jesus has been asked several questions. He's silenced all the comers, but he's not done yet. Now it's his turn to ask a question. Look at verses 41 to 44. Then he said to them, How is it that they say the Christ, the Messiah, is David, King David's son? Okay, you guys know your Bibles. Think back to the Psalms. They weren't numbered yet, so. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord, that's Yahweh, said to my Lord, this is David speaking, the Lord said to my Lord, who's David's Lord? Who's that? The Lord said to my Lord, so Yahweh speaking to some Lord of David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him, the Messiah, Lord. And how is he his son? And what's the response? Crickets. There's no words there because it's silence. Do you hear the silence getting louder as they go along? Jesus is silencing the opponents, silencing the opponents. And then here he gives his question and there's louder silence. This is our Savior. We should exult in his wisdom. Okay, it was normal for them to view past generations as greater and wiser. Very unlike us today. We're all about latest and greatest. What's new is better. What's old is worse. Okay, but do you see the reasoning here as we walk through it? Jesus is basically saying, son of David, yes. Okay, the Messiah is indeed of the house of David, the son of David, the promised Davidic king. But he's more than that. As one commentator said, he's not David Jr. He is the Lord. He is David's Lord. He's the king's king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And he's at the right hand of Yahweh. That is the place of power. That's where the scepter is. That's where you rule from. This is Philippians 2 predicted. Remember, 
He became a slave, even upon a death, death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or Peter in Acts 2.36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Now, as we step back, there's several exchanges here, okay, as we conclude. In this section, we see the mind of Christ. He couldn't be cornered. He couldn't be fooled. He couldn't be overmastered. So we see his wisdom here, and we should worship him. We should love his wisdom as he engages in these dialogues and debates. And we are actually given the mind of Christ. We see the mind of Christ, and we're given the mind of Christ. Here we learn things about what God thinks, what Christ thinks. The will of God, the mind of Christ is given to us. How are we supposed to live between the first and second coming? Well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Render to God the things that are God's. That's really helpful, especially in some very challenging political environments. What's the nature of marriage? How long does it last? What's the nature of the resurrection? Here's the mind of Christ, and he gives it to us. He reveals it to us. So he's beating them, showing his wisdom, and he's giving us his wisdom all at the same time. So we see the mind of Christ, and we get the mind of Christ. Who's Jesus? Who are we dealing with here? Not just back then, but for us today and forever, we are dealing with the one who sits at the Father's right hand. The right hand of God is the hand of power, like I said. It's the hand that holds sovereign sway over the entire universe. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Well, he's not just David's son. He's the Lord of lords. If you are in Christ, if you belong Okay, belong by grace to Jesus. All that right hand of God, omnipotence, is exercised for you. You know what it means? Do you know what this means? Psalm 110 that that Todd read. You know what that means for us? Listen to what it means as we close. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us through Christ, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us? Does anybody have the power to do that? If all that right hand omnipotence is exercised on our behalf, God's children, the one he owns, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, which may be our experience in between his first and second coming as we try to navigate the challenges of city of man, city of God, citizenship, dual citizenship? 
No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors, not because we're so tough, but because our king is the one who holds sovereign sway over the entire universe, and he empowers us. Gladly we welcome his kingship. Your kingdom come in me, every nook and cranny. I want you to rule. You're the king. In all these things, you can give me strength and power to be more than a conqueror through him who loved us because I'm sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Praise God. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that rather than being against us like we deserve, because of our rebellion, because of how we've used all that you've given us for our own selfish purposes, thinking it would be the happy path but making ourselves miserable, rather than crushing us, you came and died and were crushed for us so that we could be adopted, so that we could be your sons and daughters forever, so that we could know your love that no power on earth or in hell could separate us from. So we thank you that you are for us in Christ. And if there's anyone here, Lord, that is not trusting in Jesus as their Savior and their King, would you change their heart that they would give their life to you? And for those of us that do trust you, show us where we're holding out, where we're stiff-arming you, buying the lie that it will go worse for us if we allow you to be Lord over that area of our life. Help us to see it for the lie that it is. And I pray that we would welcome and embrace your kingship in every nook and cranny of our lives. You are so good. You are so loving and merciful and gracious. You are the king of kings. And we are so grateful that by your grace, you can be our king. And we, your citizens, we, your subjects, now and forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Go in peace.